So I first met Pastor Durso about six weeks ago, and it was at our church uh, camp out, and we were playing some volleyball. I love to play volleyball. And um, so there was this other guy. I've never met him. I didn't know who Eric was. All I knew is there's a really tall guy on the other team. And I thought, okay. And so I got this perfect set, and I was going to spike the ball, and guess what happened? It came right back in my face, and there was Eric up there. So that's how I met Eric. And uh, you are blessed to have a godly pastor who preaches faithfully God's word. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to come down here. Is that okay? I'm just going to come down here. I don't need to be up there talking to you all. How's this? Uh, it's, you were so blessed to be, have a church that faithfully preaches God's word. It's so absolutely critical. It's foundation to who you are as a church and who we are as believers. A body of believers called to be faithful with the Lord Jesus and to preach the word, whether it's popular or not, in season or out of season, to proclaim the glorious, wonderful gospel of Christ. So that's why I'm here today, is to do a little bit of that, and it's particularly to talk about the importance of guarding the treasure that's been entrusted to us, the treasure of the word of God, the treasure of the glorious gospel of Christ. And so I want to share that a little bit with you this morning, a little by way of background. Uh, I've been at Grace Church in Orange for, this is 50 years since I first stepped you know, foot in that, uh, in that church. Uh, I was a student at Biola College. In those days, it's now Biola University. And um, my future wife and I visited Grace Church where my brother-in-law and sister attended. Uh, the founding pastor of that church, a guy named Lou Grubb, um, led my brother-in-law to the Lord Jesus. Uh, back in 1968, and uh, he still follows the Lord today. Uh, Pastor Grubb is in heaven, but my brother-in-law is still here, and so that's what attracted me down to this little church. It was meeting in a, a mortuary, Fairhaven Chapel, and it was a lot smaller than this church, and there was about this many people in the church at that time, and uh, God has blessed Grace Church over these years, and um, it's been a wonderful experience as we raised our five kids, at Grace Church, and now a bunch of grandkids also. So uh, I look forward to hearing the day, if I'm still on this earth, when this church uh, blossoms and becomes a church a lot like Grace Church. And foundational to it, what it really means to be a church that, that does grow and can grow is a church that's first and foremost faithful to God's Word. If we're not faithful to God's Word, grounded in God's Word, the rest of it doesn't really count because we'll end up preaching another gospel, which... Uh, I'm not interested in, how about you? So that's what this is all about. So what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to read from 1 Timothy. I'm only going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, verses 1 to 4 this morning. I'll actually slip down a few more verses, but I'm going to focus on verses 1 to 4. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy is the first of... Uh, Paul's three pastoral epistles. And the reason they're called pastoral epistles is that, or letters, he's given instruction to young pastors. In this case, First and Second Timothy to his protege, Timothy, and then also to Titus. Those are the three pastoral epistles. So we're just going to tell you, and they're primarily instruction. How do you pastor a church? And how do you build up and choose leaders within the church? So if you'll turn there, please, I'm going to read down through uh, verses. Uh, I'm going to read down... Uh, through verse, um, verse 8 this morning. And um, do, you, do you stand for the reading of God's word? Not, not always here? At Grace Church we do, so let's stand. Hey, I'm your visitor today, and <laughs> I get to do it this way, all right? We'll just stand for God's word if you're able. 
So, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is, to lo is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. We'll stop there. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the sustaining grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that by your spirit that you would lead us in all truth today. Open our eyes, Lord, when we're blind and open our ears that we might hear that which you would have for us today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So Timothy, just by way of brief reminder for many of you, uh, Timothy was Paul's true child in the faith. What a wonderful name to have. I want to be a true child in faith, of the faith, wouldn't you? That's what Timothy was, was referred to by Paul. It says here in verse 2, it says, uh, Titus was also called the true, our beloved child in Titus 1.4. And in 2 Timothy 1.2, he calls him even uh, more fully. He says, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord. You find that in 1 Corinthians 4.17. Paul undoubtedly led Timothy to the Lord. There's no question about it. Uh, as a very young man, he may have been in his, in his teens. He might have been a teenager. Probably was. And it was while Paul was on his first missionary journey to Lystra. You can read about it in Acts chapter 14. And, and we know then that Timothy was brought up by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. And uh, they were believers, they were devout Jews who became, uh, came to faith in Christ even before Timothy did. So they undoubtedly shared the gospel with him. In 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So Paul chose Timothy early on as a co-laborer with the Lord to become his protege, his friend, his defender, and um, his co-labor, as I said, for the rest of his life. And he followed him throughout his missionary journeys to Berea and Athens and Corinth and Jerusalem and Philippi. And uh, he eventually ended up with him in Rome and ministered to Paul while he was in his first imprisonment in Rome. And now Timothy, as still a relatively young man, he might have been in his late 20s or even his early 30s, he's now given his first pastoral assignment. Go back to Go back to Ephesus, the city that Paul was kicked out of early, uh, some years before. Go back there and become their pastor and, and teach them the things of the Lord. Teach them from God's word um, and be faithful in doing that. And Ephesus was uh, facing tremendous pressure from, when, from within and without to, to, to water down the gospel of Christ. It was a... It was a pretty debauched city to say the least. Uh, my wife and I actually got to visit uh, ancient Ephesus some years ago and uh, even walking through there you saw this, the, 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 the biggest edifice in this ancient town was the, the temple to Diana. Um, so um, it was a pretty sobering experience to walk through that place and realize that this is where, this is where Timothy first, first preached the gospel of Christ. 
which brings us to the overriding theme of Paul's letters to Timothy and also to Titus, the urgent and the ongoing need to preach and protect the gospel message, a message that was given to the Ephesian elders uh, that we find recorded in Acts chapter 20. If you follow along in your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to it. In Acts chapter 20, we find Paul's instruction. He had left Ephesus under difficult circumstances. He had, didn't want to go back for fear of his life. He called the elders from Ephesus, the church that he had just established there, to meet him about 100 miles south of Ephesus in a little city called Miletus. And he gives them instruction there of what they're to do when they get back uh, to Ephesus. And he says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That was the warning for Ephesus, and it didn't didn't stop when when Timothy became the pastor. And where did the threat come from? We think we should ask the question, where's the greatest threat to the church today? You know, is it it, uh, the changes in our society? Is it broken families and false religions and government persecution? We certainly see plenty of that in our society today. If you've been following along uh, with the uh, case of the Colorado baker that uh, is being persecuted big time because he simply refused to not violate his conscience by baking a cake for a transgender person. And while there was a, there was a victory in the Supreme Court recently, which was a wonderful thing, it was a fairly narrow victory, and he's still being attacked today. We understand that. There's a lot of things going on in this church, uh, in this world, but the church's greatest threat isn't those things. The church's greatest threat comes from within in the preaching or the compromise of the preaching of God's Word. And that's what we need to understand is we lose our foundation, we lose the church. And we lose the church, we lose our impact in our society. And we need to understand that. The greatest threat to not only the church, but I think even to our own society, uh, comes from, uh, that has benefited so much from the salt of the, of the earth. And I think Uh, Pastor Durso has been preaching from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. You've undoubtedly heard from him that we are the salt of the earth, the salt and light of the earth. And when the influence of the church wanes in our society, society begins to break down and Christian values begin to, 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 to be compromised. It's the erosion of the church's commitment to biblical authority and truth that causes a breakdown within the church and without the authority and truth of Scripture, which points to the gospel of Christ was once, that was once for all delivered to the saints. When it's compromised, the church becomes weakened. And what are those fundamental principles, those non-negotiable doctrines that, and for that matter, the innumerable principles of life that we find in God's Word? I think we understand them. You could probably recite them. At least you should. Check out your church's website and read your statement of faith. There's the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. It's foundational. If we don't believe God's Word, where's our doctrine going to come from? Our opinion? Somebody else? The deity of Christ, His virgin birth, His all-sufficient atoning sacrifice on the cross for our sins, His death and His resurrection, the promises of his imminent return and so many other teaching in God's word of God, uh, the sacredness of marriage the sanctity of human life including the unborn and, and values based on absolute truths like commitment and faithfulness and honor and kindness and hard work and forgiveness and grace and forbearance and creation and even truthfulness 
itself. The influence of the church in our society is profound. And we are in, the, in God's common grace and the salt of, of the church, that's you, brings great impact upon our society. And when the church is weakened, that impact is weakened. And at, the, at its core, the church's lifeblood is and always be, will always be sound doctrine. It's the foundation stone of the church, and we understand what happens when it's weak. Um, the influence in society particularly is pretty amazing, and we've seen it erode in the, in the last 50 years especially. Um, when I was, um, when I was uh, in high school, um, I, had a, I had a dad that was um, maybe overly indulgent, let's put it that way, okay? But uh, he got tired of his kids running out of gas on our way to school, driving our old cars. You know, we'd, buy, we'd put 25 cents in and 50 cents in. Yeah, we did. That would last for a couple of days, but then we'd run out of gas and we'd have to push our cars to the gas station. This is, I know, foreign to most of you, but that's really what went on. And so he went down to the local gas station and he, uh, he arranged to, uh, for uh, him to pay the bill once a week. And we'd just drive into the station and fill our car up, you know, for five bucks or whatever it was. And we'd do that. And there was five of us kids and I think any time, any one time there were three or four of us driving. And he would, he would, uh, go down once a week and because we went in we just charge our gas and he'd write down a piece of paper the gas the gas attendant and off we'd go and and then about every week my dad would go by and he'd pay the bill Did that happen today folks does that happen today and, I, and lots of stories like that uh, like when i was five years old i'd walk down a busy street for a mile and go to kindergarten by myself no one gave a thought to it you know uh why would you can you imagine sending a five-year-old to school today walking down a busy street. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, what's changed? As subtle things change in our society, and I will tell you, the, to a large measure, it's a weakening of the influence of the church, and it's tragic. The church has a huge responsibility as salt and light. We understand that. That's why uh, um, the writer of Hebrews told the Hebrews in chapter, the last chapter, don't be led away by diverse and strange teaching. Be faithful to the Word of God. Um, I could go on with that. I guess I, I'm, I'm not going to. But um, let me just say this. To, uh, today, those standards that I've been talking about, uh, the standards of, 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 that are based on the principles of God's Word, uh, have weakened to the point where even suggesting that some behaviors are abhor abhorrent or sinful would be considered hateful speech. Have you heard that? Uh, the sanctity of marriage is considered to be hateful speech if it suggests that somebody might have a, another standard might be, might be immoral. In fact, calling any immoral behavior in itself is considered immoral, and some of the church, even leaders in many churches, have swerved from the faith, as we read in this passage, and buying into the world's fallacious arguments. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to charge him to preach the word faithfully, to adhere without exception to the gospel and to the revealed word of God. Paul rightly saw the battle for the faith as warfare. The battle for faith as warfare. In verse 18 of this passage, chapter 1, 1 Timothy, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, again there, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. In Jude, Jude tells all believers to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. It's not just simply preaching God's word. It is protecting God's word. It's guarding the treasure, as Paul told Timothy. 
And it isn't just a cultural warfare. It's first and foremost a warfare from within the church. It's a constant, fierce battle for faithful teachers, correct teaching, and sound doctrine. That's why Timothy addresses in chapter 3 the qualifications for deacons and elders, that they be able to teach, that they rightly divide God's word. In chapter uh, 6 and verse 12 of this, of this book, uh, of this letter, Paul charges Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So let's be clear about it. Protecting God's Word is a battle. And the battle for the church and the battle for the Word starts within the church. Starts with those who would be teachers, as we will see. The elders at Grace Church uh, started our meeting uh, for this month, our, el our elder board meeting, a couple weeks ago, uh, with a discussion. It just was spontaneous. It wasn't on any kind of agenda. But we started a discussion with the importance of being faithful to God's Word and, and united behind that as elders in our church. And so we recommitted ourselves to the unity of elders in our doctrine and our relationships. And we actually said we're committed to fighting for unity and fighting for the faith together. We understand that that is the charge. So we come here to the first verse of 1 Timothy. And it says that Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and hope of Christ Jesus and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first thing we see here is the sovereign care and intention for our lives that's evident throughout Scripture and explicitly here as Paul comments on his own experience. He says that he was an apostle of Christ by what? What's it say there? By command. Command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. The apostle Paul here didn't, says he didn't choose God. God chose Paul. He was called to be an apostle, a sent one, to receive and impart divine truth. He was literally plucked from his path of destruction on the, on the road to Damascus to serve and proclaim the gospel of Christ for the remainder of his life. In fact, Jesus told him that, that you will suffer for my name's sake, preaching the word of God. And he was chosen by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope literally commanded that Paul be saved and appointed to preach the gospel. And we should be reflect on that for a moment because just as Paul, we did not choose God. God chose us. He commanded us. He determined even before the very foundation of the world that we would be saved. He chose Paul and every other believer to serve him and obey him. In Colossians 3.12 it says, put on then as chosen ones. That's who we are. We're chosen ones. The holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In Ephesians 1.4, it tells us he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. Yes, we say, I believe in Jesus, and I choose to believe in Jesus, but it is God who opens our blind eyes and our deaf ears. He, his Holy Spirit is the one that draws him to himself. It's, it's, he is the one who makes... We who are dead in our trespasses, alive in him. And how dead is dead? Dead. Thank you, Michael. How dead is dead? It's dead. 
And how much can dead people hear? Nada, zero, nothing. But God in his grace allows us to hear. And God in his grace chose us before the foundation of the world. And it's just as Christ himself delivered his call and message to Paul, God uses, used Paul to deliver his message of salvation to young Timothy, his true child in the faith. And true child of the faith, let's look at that for a moment. What is a true child of faith? It means legitimate. The Greek word, for if those of you who care, is kenosis, or, uh, um, Kinesios, excuse me, my Greek was bad. Uh, it me- means legitimate, as in one born in wedlock, not out of wedlock, one born in wedlock, a legitimate child. And it speaks of the genuineness of faith and the deep commitment to the true gospel. Timothy was a true child of God because he was a firm believer in the true and unchanging gospel. And let's be clear, we're all called to be true children And true children embrace the true gospel in all its dimensions without wavering. The wonderful thing that I love about true children in the faith is that you don't have to be a seminary graduate to come to Christ. We need to have the faith as a a child. Even a child can come to faith, pure faith, simply believing. But the wonderful thing about true children is that the more they hear of the gospel of Christ, the more they rejoice and the more they welcome. They don't hear more of the gospel and say, whoa, I only heard the first part. I didn't like that part. True children love the word of God. They love the gospel. And the more they hear, the more they want to hear. And we grow as Christ, in Christ. So um, what is a true test? A two t- let me give you two tests of a true child. Two tests. And we could go on with this, but for the sake of the, the, this morning... The true test of a true child first is simply this, and we should all know this, that it is confession of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. At the heart of our hearts, conversion is the understanding and the commitment to the deity of Christ. Some in the Ephesian church uh, where Timothy was pastor had likely revealed that they questioned Jesus' deity. In John, in John 8, uh, 24, Jesus uh, tells the Pharisees, unless you believe that I am he, and he was referring to himself as the son of God, as equal with God, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. True believers receive the gospel. And the more of the gospel they, re- they hear, the more they receive it with great joy. The second evidence of a true child in the faith is obedience to the revealed word. There's a life pattern of obedience. John 8, 31 tells, tells us, this is Jesus speaking, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There you go. In Ephesians 2, 10 says this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's God's intention from the foundation of the world. When he chose us before the foundation of the world, he chose us not only to come to saving faith in Christ, he chose us to do his work and to walk in obedience, that we should walk in them. James tells us that faith without works is dead. We understand that. Works can never save. 
The scripture is certainly explicit about that. But works inevitably and invariably must evidence that we are true children. True children don't turn aside. Uh, in, in this, again, in this letter to, to Timothy, Paul says in chapter 5 and verse 15, he's speaking of some of the widows in the church. Some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Two children, two children, two children not only obey God's word, they hunger for God and his word. I love uh, Psalm 42, 1. It simply says, as the deer pants for the waters, so my soul, Lord, pants for thee. True children pant for the word of God and are obedient to the word of God. So as we look at this, um, I want to take you to verse 3 and 4. It says, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This was Paul's charge to Timothy, uh, to Timothy as he goes to pastor this church. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul's explicit and first instruction to Timothy, undoubtedly a charge he had given many times to Timothy over the past 15 years or so their Uh, ministering together in their years of travel was to deal with false teachers to charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine well who are those certain persons let's take a little bit closer look first thing I want you to see about those certain persons is that uh, they are undoubtedly leaders in the church if they're going to be teaching they're teaching in the church because they're leaders in the church so the problem at Ephesus were that leaders in the church were beginning to swerve from the faith and to teach other doctrines. Paul warned the Corinthians that false teachers disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You see that in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 12 and following. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. There are a lot of guys in pulpits today that sound really great. They're, they have mellifluous voices and they're really good communicators and they tell great stories. And they don't preach God's word. But people flock to hear them and churches are brimming full. False teachers disguise themselves as angels of light. Paul warned again to the Ephesian elders I read to you earlier, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From your own selves. Different doctrines are constantly pounding at the church's door. And we hear it all the time. I even hear from time to time at Grace, people uh, will say things that are clearly not according to God's word. Uh, oh, there, there can't really be a hell. There's got to be other ways to heaven. Jesus isn't, wasn't really God. I mean, Jesus became a God. And not all scripture is equally inspired or inspired at all. The Old Testament isn't inspired as the New Testament. You hear all this stuff. Now, I, I, I'm going to be clear. I rarely hear that from anybody at Grace but maybe a visitor will come or wherever, but you'll hear things that are pretty scary. And you realize that uh, they're being led astray and they need to be brought back to the foundation and the truth of God's word. And Paul wasn't afraid to call out false teachers by name, by the way, arising in the church. Uh, in verse 20 of uh, chapter 1, he, sa- he says, he calls out Hymenaeus and uh, Alexander. And in uh, uh, 2.17 Hymenaeus and Philetus. He says, their talk will spread like gangrene. They have swerved from the faith. They're again, swerving from the faith. 
Earlier this month, uh, Al- Albert Moeller, Albert Moeller is the uh, president of Southern uh, Baptist Seminary in Louisville, and um, he has a daily blog called The Briefing. It's worth listening to, by the way. It's easy to download or just listen to. And um, he featured a report about the uh, megachurch pastor in Atlanta, Andy Stanley. His father, some of you might remember, was Charles Stanley, is Charles Stanley, a phenomenal preacher of God's Word. His son grew up to be a preacher. His name is Andy, and he, pre- and he, he, he pastors a, uh, a megachurch in Atlanta. And he affirms faith in Christ, but as of late has begun teaching and arguing that the Old Testament needs to be, ready for this, unhitched from the New Testament. Unhitched. Um, his words. Uh, from M- Moeller's blog, Stanley has claimed that, and, and this is Moeller quoting, Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And this is, again, Stanley preaching. He says, and my friends, we must as well. Stanley did not argue that any specific Old Testament command, I'm reading from Muller's blog, uh, should be nullified. Instead, he went even further and told his listeners that old, the Old Testament should not be seen as the go-to source regarding any behavior in the church. Really? Um, that, that's a little shocking when you think about it. I'm thinking of like the Ten Commandments might be a go-to behavior for the church. The Deuteronomy 6, you know, the Lord our God is one God. And you shall teach them to your children when you rise up, when you walk by the way, when you go to bed at night. Uh, uh, all these things we live by. And oh, we're going to unhitch that from the New Testament. Go, Moeller goes on to say, is it, it is not true that references to the Scriptures are Scriptures by Jesus and the apostles are any mystery to us. They're plainly referring to what we know in the Old Testament. Faithful Jews in the first century would emphatically know exactly what the scriptures are. The fact that the Jewish authorities made their arguments on the basis of appeal to scriptures, and so did Jesus. And there are dozens of examples in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple. You remember uh, Jesus uh, preaching in the, in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. If you want to look there, you can. Uh, Luke chapter 4, and starting in verse 17. This is worth turning to. Jesus stands up in the, uh, in the, in the uh, temple, and he unrolls the scriptures. And they're from the scrolls. And they're not numbered, you know, there's no chapters or verses. But he finds where he's going right away. And how could he do that so quickly? Well, he wrote it himself, and he knows it by heart. But anyway, he opens up the scripture, and um, he starts reading from Isaiah uh, 61, verses 1 and 2. And he says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it's written. This is Luke 4, 17 following. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, as Luke tells us, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Talk about hitching the Old Testament to the New Testament. There's Jesus himself doing that. So how could a pastor of a mega church who was brought up in the church, who heard his father preach faithfully his whole life, say such a thing? There's a lot more here. Uh, I could go on quite a bit, but I think I'll just stop there. It's important that we understand that God's Word, all of God's Word is inspired. You heard, it, you heard it read this morning. All Scripture 
is inspired by God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction of righteousness, that the man of God might be mature, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is inspired by God. We can't parse it out. We can't pick and choose the things that we like and that we don't like. And if you're wondering, by the way, uh, what about all that ceremonial stuff and the, the sacrifices and the offerings, uh, re- read the book of Hebrews. And you'll understand where that fits, the ceremonial. Uh, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, to make it perfect. And so Jesus became the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest that rendered unnecessary the offerings of, of bulls and goats and lambs and doves for the sins of the people. Well, these certain persons were undoubtedly leaders in the church. And the second thing I want you to see about these certain persons is that not all that they were teaching was explicitly false doctrine. It just wasn't doctrine at all. There's a lot of guys go up and tell really great stories that just aren't from the Bible, and they're not false doctrine. They're just not... They're just stories. I mean... I could go on this morning and tell you lots of stories from my childhood about walking to school uh, down a busy street, right? I could tell you about getting gas at the gas. I could tell you lots of stories for, for, for an hour or 50 minutes or whatever, and maybe, you know, it'd be interesting. It just isn't the gospel. So let's be clear about that. Um, they, they got caught up in other things, and some of which were, were popular, uh, uh, the, the popular things of today. Uh, some of it was carryovers from their pagan past, these myths and endless genealogies. And some of the myths were undoubtedly patently false teaching, let's be clear about that, rooted in Greek mythologies. Um, and certainly the genealogies were most likely carryovers from ancestor worship, um, and, of course, we have false religions today that still do that. Think of the Mormons who get baptized for their ancestors. Or they may have been seemingly harmless or interesting studies, not unlike many today who enjoy studying about their own uh, ancestors. You don't need to uh, raise your hands, and I really don't have any, in- any issue with being interested in who your ancestors were. Uh, it's, it's interesting study. I, I was fascinated to find out that I have a great-great-great-great-grandfather that, that was an early missionary on Martha's Vineyard in, uh, outside of Boston. I think that's fascinating. I got to go visit that little church that still stands there today from the 1600s. But that's not religion. Um, uh, maybe some of you have, have connected with 23andMe. You, know, the, uh, you can check out your ancestry. Uh, I'm not suggesting you go there, by the way. You can. But what I am saying is that when certain churches begin to introduce such teachings, they displace the teachings of sound doctrine and the whole counsel of God. We get caught up in other things that are not God's word. And things that are seemingly innocent can lead us astray. These are the very kind of seemingly harmless pursuits that can easily lead leaders in the flock to swerve from God's word. Again, You look at uh, verse 6 of chapter 1 here. Certain person by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. It doesn't say false doctrine. It simply says vain or useless or empty discussions. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
Let me just say that if we truly immerse ourselves in God's word to study to show ourselves workers who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing scripture, there will not be time in church for other teaching. Let's just, I mean, I've been privileged to be able to teach God's word for um, 50 years now. And uh, I will tell you that um, I am getting worried in a sort of a, maybe a carnal sort of way, I'm realizing that I'm not going to be able to teach everything that's in God's Word, and I really wanted to. My goal is in my, in my adult class I teach um, to teach through the entire Word of God in my lifetime, book by book. And um, I've been a bit of a recidivist. I've taught a couple, cha- a couple books more than once. Um, and I'm concerned that I may not make it all the way through before I die or somebody kicks me out of teaching but uh, tell me I'm too old to teach. But let me tell you, we can never plumb all the depths of God's Word. We never can. If we spent all day every day in this church studying and studying, we'd never get to the end. About a year ago, a family visited our church. I'm going to speak a little bit about genealogies. And, and this is interesting. Immediately following the service, they came up and said, we want to join this church. Well, my antenna went up right away when I heard that. Uh, really, you came here one Sunday and you figured you want to join this church. So maybe that's real, but let's check it out. Uh, so another elder and I uh, met with the mom and dad, and their little kids were running all around, which is fine. We love kids. Uh, and, um, but we soon discovered they had an agenda. She wanted to introduce a study of family geology, uh, genealogies. And... Um, there was something about that. Now, okay, there's nothing wrong with that per se, but studying family genealogies didn't, anyway, um, it didn't ring true, so we suspected there was a financial motive behind their interest. They wanted to charge for these, these, these things. And um, we, um, their interest, uh, there was a danger of them, we felt uh, immediately that there was a danger in speculating uh, rather than the stewardship from God's word that is by faith. So we explained to them gently and lovingly that the elders in this church do not release anyone to teach before they have first been tested. Paul suggests that to Timothy. It's a good idea. Um, And in any case, we wouldn't allow anyone to teach in the church, even women to women, um, sooner than a year. So they, like the rich young ruler, uh, were greatly saddened. and They went away and never came back. But again... Let's be careful how we, uh, that we not be led astray by uh, interesting things that happen in the church, vain studies that don't lead us anywhere. Um, I urge you not to teach any different doctrine or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God, which is by faith. And so this, this stewardship that we're talking about, let's look at that the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul reminds Timothy of two essential elements of this charge as a pastor, the stewardship by faith. One, obviously, it's a stewardship, a sacred trust. When Pastor Durso stands up here and preaches God's word, when, when anybody else teaches a Bible study, preaches God's word, they are exercising a sacred trust. They are imparting Holy Scripture. They're imparting the very word of God. And we need to ask the question, and I should ask the question, who am I to dare to speak God's word? 
We better be a student of God's Word. We better be faithful. We better be prepared. We better be accountable. And the people, the people of the congregation need to be discerning. A steward is responsible for the faithful care and conservation of his master's possessions. In this case, we're talking about the very Word of God in its entirety. Again, I don't want to belabor this, but uh, then again, I will. All Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for us. In in, um, chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, starting with verse 20, Paul pleads with Timothy. Chapter 6 and verse 20. Paul pleads with Timothy, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent, irreverent babble in contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have, here it is again, swerved from the faith. In this letter, Paul charges Timothy once again. In this second letter, this is now 2 Timothy, chapter 1, starting with verse 12. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have learned from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. Michael, I don't know if you remember, I think, how old are you when your, your dad came to Grace Church? Like 11, 12. So I preached uh, uh, Pastor Mike's, uh, um, at his ordination uh, services, and... Um, I preached pretty much this message. It wasn't the same, but pretty much. And one of the things I remember, and Mike remembers, Pastor Mike, it tells me often, he says, you told me, Mark, to guard the word of God, to guard the treasure entrusted to me. And I said, I'm doing that. And I said, yes, Mike, you are. You are faithful in guarding God's word. That is the stewardship. That is the trust of every pastor who claims to be a follower of Christ. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in faith and love, Paul tells Timothy in in 2 Timothy. By the Holy Spirit who indwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So the first first responsibility, our description of a faithful faithful pastor, a faithful teacher, is stewardship. And the second is is simply this. The stewardship of Scripture comes by faith, not simply by our own intellect, our diligent study. And by the way, we're called to be students of God's Word, study to show ourselves and prove. We get that. But ultimately, ultimately we choose to believe God's Word, that is, God's, God's Holy Scripture. We choose to believe it by faith, just as we come to faith in Christ by faith. The such is the kingdom. Who are the such is the kingdom of God's? They're little children, right? Jesus said, King James says, suffer the little children. But he said, permit the little children to come unto me, for such are the kingdom of God. The little ones who are intellectual giants, they come with simple childlike faith, just as we are to come to Christ with simple childlike faith and grow from there. 
Those such as the kingdom of God children need to not be intellectuals or seminary graduates. We must come to God and to come to Scripture by faith, choosing to believe even that which is hard to understand and even at times hard to accept. We cannot empirically prove everything in Scripture. We affirm the Scripture first and foremost because God's Word says it and we choose to believe it. We choose to believe it and we choose to live in obedience to it. We understand that without faith, it's impossible to please God, James tells us. It's impossible. It's impossible to please God unless we choose to believe God's Word by faith. And in, in Paul tells the Romans in Romans chapter 7, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from what? The Word of God. Hearing comes from the Word of God. We read God's Word and God gives us faith to believe it and to obey it. We're never going to do it through intellectual arguments alone. I love apologetics. I love proving. I love, to the extent we can, I love defending the faith. We're called to do that. I love, frankly, there are times I love waging the good fight. There are times I want to say, let me at it. But let me tell you, at the end of the day, my belief in Scripture is going to come because God in His grace has given me faith to believe that which I've been diligent to read and to study and to immerse my life in. Let me just leave you with this. Paul's standard for sound teaching. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love and issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. And what? A sincere faith. That's the standard for Paul's preaching. He asked God, God, give me a pure heart. You know, as David, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into has everlasting you know that pure heart a good conscience what's this good conscience lord help me to walk pure life before you as a leader in the church that i might be an example to those who would hear my teaching and observe my life lord uh help me to have a good conscience knowing that there's not hidden things in my spiritual closet in my life closet that if we were to open up and people were to see the name of Christ would be, would be shamed. Lord, help me to live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Really? I don't know about you, but that's the kind of life I want to live. And that's the kind of life that we should expect from all those who would dare to preach and to teach God's word. A pure conscience, a good conscience, a pure heart, and a sincere faith. A faith that doesn't question, a faith that chooses to believe, and a faith that chooses to obey the Holy Scriptures, that which God has given to us. Standard of sound teaching. And the best news about the gospel, I think, not only did Christ die for us, but that he secures us for all of eternity, and God will guard our faith. And First Peter, I'll just leave you with this. In chapter 1 and verses 3 to 5, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1. Reserved in heaven for us, by God's power being guarded through faith. God's power guards 
his promise to us by faith. Well, in my, um, in my class that I get to teach, um, I generally um, close with a, by reading a hymn because they capture the power of God's Word so, so succinctly, as all good Christian music should. So I'm going to leave you with a hymn. And the good news is I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to share it with you. This is uh, from an author, S.J. Stone, who wrote this hymn in 1866, well, about 150 years ago, 152 years ago, I guess, to be exact, and uh, goes like this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation. One Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the visions glorious, her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, in love may dwell with thee. Lord, we thank you for these moments that we can come together. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we ask that as those of us who are charged with, with preaching your word, that you might find us faithful in all things that we might believe your word through faith, that we might teach your word without compromise. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for salvation that does not change in Christ Jesus. Amen.